Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1980 Stanley Kubrick film, The Shining. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great. Barrett, uh, this episode comes out on October 30th, which is the last day of the season at the Overlook Hotel before everybody leaves and the Torrances take over. So this is very well-timed by you to pick this movie. Um, we've talked about Kubrick uh uh, a lot. Um, we talked about Kubrick when we watched uh, Dr. Strangelove. I know we're both big fans of, of Stanley Kubrick. Um, what is your history with this film in particular? Well, fortunately, I guess, because of my age, um, I was fully cognizant of the release of this film. And like everybody else at the time, I looked forward to it. I watched the uh, trailer uh, an infinite number of times. So I was a confirmed Kubrick uh, follower by the time this film came out. And I was really looking forward to it. And I, and I kind of went through some of the same cycles of uh, initial disappointment with the film and then kind of a growing appreciation uh, for the film. But I remember the, it, the, I remember the trailers with, uh, with the blood pouring out of the elevator. And it just, you know, the, the expectations were so heightened. In fact, Kubrick himself said he wanted to make the scariest film of all time. So, I mean, he, he set the bar so high, and I'm rarely disappointed in Kubrick. But I had seen, you know, his film before this was Barry Lyndon, which was a commercial disappointment, but a really interesting film. Um, so yeah, I was really looking forward to it. So it's, I've, I've kind of come to terms with the film over a number of years since that first viewing. Um, I assume that you had not read the Stephen King book, the shining before watching this. Is that correct? That is a very good question. I'm trying to remember because, um, uh, King's book came out in 77. I wasn't a King fan, but I was reading some King. But I honestly cannot recall whether I had read The Shining, whether I read the novel before or after, because I have read the novel and I am aware of it in relation to the film. But I don't think I read it before the movie. That's a good question. Here's why I ask that, because one of the. uh, So I saw this movie probably for the first time only about 10 years ago, Um, but it's a movie that has so quickly worked its way into just popular culture that i had seen a thousand references to the shining before i saw it i'm curious what was it like to watch this movie not knowing i mean knowing that it that that it's kubrick making a horror movie kubrick adapting a stephen king novel but not knowing what you're going to find around any corner or what you're going to find flash onto the screen like because i gotta say even the first time that i saw this like there are very few images that I hadn't encountered in some parody way, you know, before I saw it. Like, what do you remember what it was like? Like, was this a shocking thing? Even if you didn't, weren't sure you liked it, were you, was it shocking to see what he was doing, to see some of these visuals? Yeah, that's a really good question, Sam. And, and I think maybe that gets at why in some ways the film disappointed me because so many of those shocking images were already shown in the previews. And so I guess, you know, you had the blood, you even had the twins. Um, I think there was a shot of, of Danny on his uh, big wheel. I mean, I felt like the, the trailer had given away all of the really scary moments. And so I went in thinking, oh, my gosh, if that's what's in the trailer, it, it's, it's, like, it's like when you see a trailer for what turns out to be a bad movie, and it turns out that they have actually put all of the good moments of the movie in the trailer. I think in terms of the, of the real shocking shocks of this film, 
I think too much of that was given away before I went in. I think the reason to anticipate our conversation, I think the reason I've grown in appreciation for the film is to realize the genuine horror of the film isn't in those images. And I think that's what Kubrick was trying to do. And I think he, I think the audience got set up and this happens as you know, with a lot of films, I think we got set up with false, false expectations. So um, just to get this out of the way, uh, how do you feel about this movie now in terms of thinking about Kubrick's body of work? Oh, that's a good, that's, that's a good question. Um, it's, it's actually pretty high for me. I, th- I think it, it kind of keeps going up. Um, I haven't revisited, to be fair to Barry Lyndon, for example, I haven't revisited that, but I'd have a, I, I'd have a hard time putting Barry Lyndon ahead of this. I like 2001, but I'd rather, I guess if I think about that question, Sam, which Kubrick film would I rather watch again? Mm-hmm. You know, and Strange Love is up there, of course, um, and uh, uh, and Full Metal Jacket, and probably this one. I guess, I guess if I think, and, and Clockwork Orange. I guess I had to think about four Kubrick films I would watch above the others would be those, and this would be certainly there. Just because I think there's so, as we'll talk about, there's so much going on in this film. Uh, it's just. I know it is almost endlessly fascinating and it has, as you alluded to, it's generated an enormous body of commentary. I was reading a chapter in uh, John, in uh, uh, in, uh, James Naramore's book and it's amazing how many critics have kind of come back uh, to, to to write about this film. Well, what I found interesting is as I was reading about this, uh, as you point out, I mean, this, this is his follow-up to Barry Lyndon, which I have watched in the last couple of months again. And I would say that you should revisit that. It's great. I loved mm. that movie. I thought that was so interesting. But this is, he is so explicit about saying, like, I want to make a, com- a a commercially successful appeal uh, film that has this kind of broad appeal. And I was thinking about, like, of Kubrick's movies, so many of which are so highly regarded and so famous and so iconic, this has got to be the most popular movie that he made in terms of, the number of people who see this. And what I mean by that is I can think about kids I knew in high school who I can never imagine watching Barry Lyndon, who I can never imagine watching Paths of Glory or 2001 A Space Odyssey or even Dr. Strangelove who watched The Shining and would make references to The Shining because it's a horror film, but it's also a Kubrick film and it's also all these other things. I feel like this is maybe the one that has permeated american popular culture more than anything so that way by that definition of popular i would say is this this is this seems like his most popular film does that seem right i think that's exactly right sam and and i think it also gets at what to me has been always a kind of um paradox of kubrick because you know kubrick kubrick is a darling of cinephiles he's regarded as i think appropriately as a as a great director but he's not an art house director and he never wanted to be an art house director. And so The Shining was a deliberate gambit on his part for popularity. I mean, it's really interesting because on the one hand, you have him as this kind of, you know, isolated genius. But on the other hand, he really wants popular appeal. The, the best description I read of The Shining from, uh, from uh, Roger Luckhurst, who wrote a, mon- a monograph for the British Film Institute. He says the film is high art and low culture subversive, yet utterly contained, seemingly destined to please no one, which is interesting because it actually ends up pleasing a lot of people. But I love that phrase, high art and low culture. Uh, and I think that's, that's actually 
a lot of what you often find in Kubrick. He he sometimes adapts high culture, but he often adapts low culture as well. Um, I will say, even though I had absorbed so much of this in, you know, in broader popular culture from everything of like multiple Simpsons episodes that make tons of shining references and TV commercials and all these different things, um, I still found and find this movie genuinely terrifying and disturbing and unsettling. Uh, I have to say, I am not I'm not a horror film person. I like like bad kind of cheesy horror movies. I think those are like low budget. Like those are kind of funny to watch to me. But um, I got to say, Barrett, and, and I'm, I like I want. OK, I'm going to preface this sentence by saying I love this movie. I had a rough week because I watched The Shining twice this week and I watched <laughs> a bunch of Shining adjacent content and read a lot about it. And it's like. I don't know. This movie works on me in weird ways. And it's, you know, I, I, uh, I walk to work in the morning and I walk home and I'm often walking in the dark alone through the woods. Not that this movie has any of that, but there is just this sense of like, wow, I'm, I'm in a, like a not great place all the time watching this. So, um, so this movie works really, really well um, on me. And partially because it's what I look for in a movie, especially the first time I saw it, it was just like, I, I knew the pieces, but I didn't know how they fit together and I didn't know how they added up. And um, this, and I, this is a refrain I say a lot on this podcast, like this struck me as something entirely unique and entirely, entirely new to me. Um, and that to, to make a film like that, and then also make it a scary film, a, a horror film, like um, yeah, this, this, this does a number on me, but the thing that blows me away is it still does, even though, I've seen this movie enough that there is no moments like I'm watching it being like, Oh, this is when this thing's going to happen. And it's still like, it still works on me, even though I know what's going to happen when they turn this corner or something like that. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll make a literary comparison here, um, Sam, because one of the, one of the elements this film has in it is what, what Freud and others have kind of called the uncanny. Um, and, and the uncanny is this feeling that taps into your, these deep unconscious fears. And the, the literary comparison I'm going to make is when I read, um, and I've read it several times, when I read Henry James's The Turn of the Screw, there's a point in that film where a character appears who may or may not be a ghost. And every time I read it, in fact, even now as I tell you this, I can literally feel a chill. There is something about that scene that is so disturbing that even though I know it's coming, it still works on me as if for the first time. And I think The Shining has those moments. And I think a lot of it is because it taps into primal fears. One of the things that this film is about is the idea that the monster is inside the family, that the monster is the father. That the mo One of the unusual things about this film is you don't see many horror films where the monster is a white male patriarch. And so, you know, and Kubrick was kind of a devotee of Freudian psychology, and you don't need to be a Freudian to get this, but the idea that somehow the real evil is within, the very, the very, uh, the very source we, we usually expect in our lives for comfort and security and safety becomes the very thing that's the greatest danger. And I think the way the film continually plays on that and deepens that, I think that's why it keeps working on us. So in light of all of this, and, and I'm glad I'm actually really happy to hear your initial response to this when you saw it, 
Um, and to hear sort of, cause I wasn't aware of, of like the kind of build up to this. I was really amazed watch or reading contemporary, contemporary reviews of this. So reviews written, you know, in 1980 and just how lukewarm people were on this movie, even, even talking about it as a horror film, mm-hmm. because I feel like for one thing, this is a movie that has been interpreted and over-interpreted. I mean, it may be one of the more interpreted movies in American mm-hmm. cinema. Like, like there are movies and books about this movie and people pulling all these things out. And we'll talk about a little bit of that. But I don't think it needs those deep interpretations to sort of get at some of the things that you just said right there. Why were people missing this when they first saw it? I, th- I think it was partly the misdirection that I talked about earlier. I think it was partly, you know, in 1980, it's coming out and there's been, there's been horror films like, um, you know, The Exorcist and um, The Brood and uh, Halloween Halloween and Carrie. I mean, you know, the, so, so I, th- I think when people are thinking The Exorcist, when people are thinking horror, that's what they're thinking. And I also think there's a great line from Pauline Kael and, Kale is a great critic, but one that's often uh, I disagree with. But Kale said this. She said, who wants to see evil in daylight through a wide-angle lens? I mean, I, I, I think that was a lot of it, Sam. I think it was like, the, the, I thought you were making a horror film, and everything's happening in broad daylight. You only get darkness and shadows kind of at the end, and even then you've got those big spotlights you know lighting up the maze at night it's like nothing nothing happens in the dark it's supposed to be dark stanley and of course what kubrick is interested in is he's he's interested in the dark corners of the unconscious but but i think that i think critics like the average viewer went in expecting a very different kind of uh kind of film and it took him a while to revisit it and figure out whether well, something else there's a different kind of horror going on here but it's not what people were thinking about as, uh, as horror at, at the time. I, I think there's another, I, I think there's also another sense too in which the film kind of baffled expectations. And that is what I was saying earlier about, about the family, because usually what happens in horror films like in, uh, in um, uh, uh, Poltergeist, you know, it's, it, I realize that comes after this, but still it's the idea that uh, when faced with horror, the family uh, unites. But in this film, it's the horror comes from the, in the family and it causes it to explode. So I think it really went against the grain in a lot of respects. I'm glad you brought up that Pauline Kale quote because I, I read that and I forgot that she said that. Um, but but and, and I mean, and this is this is sort of part of the point is like to me, that's the thing that's scariest about this movie in some ways is that I'm somebody who ever since I was a little kid, I'm afraid of the dark. I'm afraid of things I can't see and things maybe I hear but can't see. But I was as last night as I was writing notes for this to get ready for it, I was up late and I was the last person up and I was starting to shut the lights off in the house. And I was thinking like, oh, it's kind of weird to shut the lights off. I've been thinking about The Shining for the last hour and a half. And then I was like, but nothing in The Shining is in the dark. And then I looked forward and I saw in my own house the hallway I needed to turn down and the light was on. And I had this moment of like, what if I were to walk into that hallway and what would I see at the end of it with the lights on? And I'm like, you did it, Stanley. Like, you made me afraid of the light. You made me, af- you made me just le- le- like, like I was less afraid of the darkness around me and more afraid of the thing that, that was in the light. And, and, and I think it is that sort of playing with expectations that this movie, even like you said, even when they go to the maze, 
he intentionally shows you a scene of Jack turning the lights on in the maze to be like, this is all going to, we're going to see all of this. And then, and this isn't a, so it isn't about jump scares like that. It's about the lights are on every, everything is happening so you can see it because he wants you to see it. And I think that's, um, I think that's a, a pretty powerful thing in this. And I also think it's part of, you know, Kubrick's affirmation of the reality of evil. In other words, you know, one of the things happens when, when things happen in the dark, sometimes there's, there's, an, there's a certain ambiguity about whether or not it's real or you're imagining it. And the evil here is so, well, of course, there, there is ambiguity in the film about what exists or doesn't exist. But I think that what does clearly exist is the evil of the way that Jack is, beha- Jack is behaving and his descent into whatever madness that he's descended into. That's, that's objectively real. So you don't need to show Jack in the shadows to suggest that Jack is, is evil or is being gripped by evil because it's, it's simply happening. And I think if you think about it as a reflection of evil that we, ex- that we can experience in life, um, those things often happen in full daylight. They don't only happen at night when the sun goes down. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that the, the scariest thing can be walking into a room where your spouse is working, <laughs> that that can be the thing that sets off, you know, like, like you, you, in some ways you don't know the inner lives of people. You don't know what's going on in their heads. So when Wendy innocently walks in to bring Jack lunch or to ask him a question or say, oh, it's going to snow he can snap in a way you're not expecting, you know? So, 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 and so that, and that's not, as you said, that maybe exists in the dark recesses of our mind, but it sure doesn't exist in the darkness. Or, or, or sitting on a bed with your, on your father's lap. Mm-hmm. I mean, by the time Danny does that, and by the time Jack tells him how much he loves him, you know that this is not what's going on. So that becomes rather than a scene of comfort, it becomes a scene of, 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 of terror. And that happens in the full light. So I was thinking about um, what are the tools that Kubrick uses to make this movie scary? Why is this so scary? So I was trying to sort of um, break down. I will say one thing that made this movie less disturbing to me one of the times I watched it this week was to take assiduous notes. That that actually helps a lot. If I'm writing notes, I'm less I'm less like pull like I'm constantly pulling myself out of the movie to write things down. So that helped a lot. <laughs> um, I think the score is amazing in this. Uh, and it's 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 interesting because it's a 1980 score, so it has some things that shouldn't age well in it. There's a lot of like synth kind of music to it, which which uh, is usually a thing that ruins movies from the early 80s. Uh, but this isn't that. And then it has just the way that he uses kind of these vague wailing human voices that come and go. It reminds me of 2001 when they go on the moon to see the monolith. And it's just this like growing chorus of voices, not saying anything, but you're just, you're just sort of overtaken and it, and it builds in a way you don't expect. And all of a sudden those voices are there. Um, I think the, I think the score and the way he pulls it up or down at certain moments um, is, is pretty masterful. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the, the synth music is, um, well, there was an entire score for the film written by Wendy Carlos, who used to be Walter Carlos. Uh, who did the score for um, uh, Clockwork Orange. And so uh, he, then she, was kind of famous for using the, uh, making the Moog synthesizer sort of, sort of popular. So that's somebody that uh, he had worked with before. But the, uh, uh, as is also typical of Kubrick films, he's using a lot of classical, although in this case it's, it's contemporary class, classical music. But like that, that opening, that opening, um, 
uh, scene as Jack is driving up what actually is the going to the Sun Road in Glacier National Park. Um, it's Wendy Carlos's synthesizer version of Dies Irae, which is the hymn performed at Requiem Masses and Medieval Times to evoke the Day of Judgment. So there's a lot of a lot of stuff that's going on with the music at the same time. And you're right, that synthesizer effect makes it even eerier. Um, the other thing that that blew me away, and I was thinking a lot about this. I mean, the the this. And I'm not breaking any news here. The set design of this this yeah. is so amazing. Um, I mean, the 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 first thing you you remember about this are the carpets, you mm -hmm. know, the and and the the difference between the car the like hexagonal carpets in the hallway, and then when you go into room two thirty seven, and it's that same design, but it's like rounded more, and the colors change. Um, but also the like number of rooms or hallways that have very bold solid colors mm. which is like those things don't exist like there is not a red bathroom like that bathroom off the gold ballroom i don't think there's a bathroom like that in the world like that's such a strange room um and then you see hallways you see like the, the, the red hallway the blue stairs like the, the the colors in those rooms are so striking because they're so um uh, there he gets rid of patterns and it's just like this bold color overtaking this entire room. Actually, actually I have to correct you, Sam, because I did, I did read somewhere that the, the bar, the bathroom is based on Frank Lloyd Wright's design for the Arizona Biltmore. Really? That yeah, is a yeah. terrifying bathroom. It is, it, 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 but, but yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. The minute they walk in that bathroom, I'm like, this can't be real. Now, it said it was based on Frank Lloyd Wright's design. I don't know if it was ever actually executed because I can't, I can't believe you would do anything in a bathroom like that other than have murderous thoughts. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like, like I remember in high school having teachers talk about like, you know, certain colors are supposed to make you more creative or make, you know, so they like, they would paint classrooms these bold colors. And it feels like this whole hotel was designed to be like, what are the colors that make you homicidal? And let's do those <laughs> colors. Because it, you know, and, 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 and it's it is it is so striking to see that. And then um, one of the things that I that I thought I thought about as I was thinking about the set design, it's like I would love to see somebody make a movie set in on this exact set, but not a horror movie. Like I'd love to see like a big old Hollywood musical set in the Overlook and just see like, would you buy it, or is this actually an inherently like scary place? <laughs> you know, could could you could you see a big uh, like um, like White Christmas or something, but set in the Overlook Hotel. Well, one version of that is: Have you ever seen the uh, the parody um, trailer for The Shining that makes it a domestic comedy? No, no. Oh yeah, yeah. You should you should check you should check that out because it it it, it finds enough scenes of domesticity and it gives a, a a narrative voiceover that actually recasts the entire film as a, as a as a as a nice little domestic uh, drama or comedy. So yeah, so somebody's already thought about that, but they haven't made the full movie. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, the set burned down, so it's not possible. Yes. Uh, there is just something about being alone in big spaces that aren't meant to be solitary spaces. Like when he's working in the Colorado lounge, that the fact that he takes that as his writing office, yes. it's like that's not supposed to be a space for one person. And there's something so unsettling about that. And I, okay, here's, here's one of the, the things that I'm most thankful for in my life. I told you, I watched this movie probably for the first time about 10 years ago. Mm. I am thankful that I did not see this movies. Let's say in the nineties, because mm. on the night I was married, 
the place where we had our wedding reception and where we stayed that night was a, a big reception venue that was shutting down. So we were the only people in the, uh, the, the hotel part of it. And they just gave us the front door keys and they were like, yeah, if you need something, just go to the kitchen. Now in hindsight, had I been aware of the intricacies of the shining, I think I would have gone insane because I was terrified. I remember going to the kitchen and just being like, I feel like I shouldn't be here. Like this doesn't feel right. And I didn't have the baggage of the shining. So I have lived one night. It happened to be my wedding night of this experience. And uh, it was, that was terrifying even without this baggage. Well, I have to say something else about Jack in that open space. And this, this relates to the fact that here's why I'm glad the movie was made in 1980, because otherwise you wouldn't have had the typewriter. If he made the movie now or in the last 20 years, he would have been on a laptop or, or, or a desktop. But the clacking of the, of, and the echoing clacking of those typewriter keys, that, that is so... Of course, we haven't even begun to talk about the sound in this film, but I think the sound is a really important element of those kind of gunshot sounds of the keys. Why don't you talk about sound a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, other, the other thing, obviously, which is brilliant about this film, and the thing that sticks in your head, is the combination of the visual and the aural in the scenes of especially Danny on his, on his trike, or his big wheel. Um, you know, you get the smooth, the smoothness of the carpet and then the, and the, and then the, uh, the, the, the high pitched, high pitched sound of, of the, the wood floor. And I don't know what it is about that. I think maybe it's the immersiveness of it. It, it reinforces the subjectivity of the point of view that you really are with Danny because you're hearing those sounds exactly as he's hearing them. And then of course, Kubrick makes extensive use of the Steadicam. Uh, steady, as you probably know, Kubrick was always on top of technological innovations. He was an innovator himself. He helped to create the lenses for Barry Lyndon, which allowed them to shoot the candles in natural light, for example. Um, he was a photographer by uh, originally. had He had his photographs published in uh, Look magazine when he was 15 years old. So, you know, he was a technician. Anyway, he made extensive use of the Steadicam. It hadn't been used much before The Shining. It was used in Marathon Man, and it was used in Rocky, actually, in a, in, uh, as well as Bound for Glory. But he was, because of the use of the Steadicam, he was able to get down at ground level and really follow Danny. So I think it's that, that marriage of sound and sight that really works so well and puts you so much in Danny's world that when the twins show up, uh, I think that's why it has an especially startling effect on the viewer. Yeah, I think, and, and, and if you pay attention to the movie, there are three big wheel scenes and mm -hmm. and the first one is just a loop that he makes and nothing happens but it kind of gives you the groundwork and then the others and it almost lulls you into okay well this is you know like i'm okay with this and the second one is when he stops at room three uh 237 and looks at it tries mm -hmm. to open it and it's locked he drives away and then the third one is he's all mm -hmm. of a sudden driving upstairs and and um and sees the twins and I think those tracking shots um, with the steady cam and, and, and there's a lot, I mean, this movie is um, 
can't remember where I read this. Somebody said that ultimately this movie is about tracking. It's about follow. I mean, from the opening <laughs> shot where you're following the car to the ending when you're following them through the maze, this is about people following people. This is about you following people. This is, so, so this is all about tracking. But there's something amazing about those shots. And this goes back to whether I know or don't know what it's around, what's around the corner is every time you're tracking with them, you because they're long shots, you see what's ahead of you. And it's like, as long as you can see what's ahead of you, you f- I feel safe. Mm. But then when you, when you see, we're going to turn a corner, I, I get tense because I don't know what I'm going to see. And a lot of this movie is about people turning corners and seeing or not seeing something, mm. you know, when Wendy turns the corner and sees Halloran's body, when Danny turns the corner and, and, and sees the twins and it creates this kind of dread, <clears throat> um, and even when I know, like, okay, this is the scene where Danny turns and sees the twins, the seed is already planted. So I'm all I'm I'm I already feel unsettled before he turns that mm-hmm. corner. As if I believe Kubrick has the power to put something different there. Like for some reason, like, you know, I, I like like I know what's there, but I also it's also something that because he shoots them from far enough away that it's like, I never really get a good look at them. And he do- we don't yeah. spend enough time looking at them that every time I see them, I feel like I'm looking at something different because I, I haven't, um, I haven't, you know, paused that and really studied the, those scenes, you know, maybe that would make me feel less unsettled, but because I don't let myself do that, that's, um, you know, I, th- th- that's something that's always unsettling. And it gives this movie the quality Quality is a weird word, but I'll use it. The quality of dreams or nightmares to me, Mm -hmm. like this Mm -hmm. is what often my dreams are things where I'm on a path and then I, then there is a turn or a choice that I have to make. And it's what's going to be around that, that turn. Um, I think Kubrick has made at least three movies to me that um, tap into the way that I experience dreams. Um, This might make my dream life sound very unsettling, but it's this movie eyes wide shut and, a clockwork orange all have like, this is what dreams are, especially nightmares feel like to me that there's a part of it that it's like, doesn't fully make sense to me. And there's a, and then it is punctuated by things that are either violent or unsettling where you're, where, where I'm, I'm not ready for that. Um, and I feel like, like he and David Lynch are the two people who do that to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, and, uh, yes. And, uh, we, we experience nightmares in, uh, in full daylight when we're dreaming, right? I mean, it's, it's just the reality and yet it, it, unset- it unsettles us. Um, I, I, I'm glad you pointed that out about the three different big wheel scenes leading up to the, leading up to the twins, because one thing that I admire about this film is, uh, and it's interesting to me because Kubrick kept shortening it. Um, uh, he, ended up cutting out about a total of 20 minutes or so uh, after kind of its European showing then after its early American showing. Then it's interesting to me because to me, one of the things I love about the film or admire about the film is that it is, it's beautifully paced. When you think, when you, you know, when you think about how he paces Jack's descent uh, into, into madness, it just, it, because I, I'm always concerned about pacing with horror films. Sometimes they go too quickly. Sometimes they go too slowly. And I just feel like, um, I never felt at any point watching this film, oh, you know, there's too much of this or there's not enough of that. It always feels like it's going in just at just the right amount of kind of psychological pace, if one can think about it that way. Well, and then he punctuates and this. Is, this is a pacing thing, too. He punctuates these long, wide tracking shots with these quick cuts, you know. Um, so and I, and again, imagining this movie existing in a world without 
VHS, let alone DVD or Blu-ray, where you can't just pause and be like, what was it that I just saw? Or can we see that scene again? Mm-hmm. You know, that that um that there are there are these these quick cuts so like the first time you see the bloody elevator, like it's it's when Danny is having this episode and you see it, you see the 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 two girls really quick cut. Um, when Wendy is having her um her kind of breakdown at the end, the first time she starts seeing things. I mean, you you get you get introduced to some things that that aren't in any other part of the movie, like the the weird, almost cheesy, like skeleton. It almost looks like a, the Disney haunted mansion, like the mm-hmm. skeletons in that the one room, mm-hmm. or the 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 guy in the bear suit, and you're just like, what what did I just see? And yes. it's like that. It seems un unrooted to anything else that we've seen in the movie, and those things happen so quickly. And then the movie, because of its pacing, moves on from it. So almost to the point of like, did I see what I thought I saw? But I'm on to this other thing. Um, and I think I think there it's interesting thinking about like the 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 two girls. Mm. To me, the scariest version of them is the first, not the first the first time we see them when they're in the hotel, when Danny's in the games room and he's throwing darts, mm-hmm. and we get that close-up of him on the darts, and you mm-hmm. can he does a great job of showing us that Danny is sensing something. And he turns and looks, but he doesn't move the key. He doesn't cut to them right away. Mm-hmm. And you see them and that time they don't say anything and they yeah. just leave. And it could be, well, maybe these are guests of the hotel on the last day that are leaving, <laughs> you know, or, or children of somebody working there. Um, and to me, that's far more ter- terrifying than the scene of like the clip of seeing their bodies all chopped mm. up. Like to me, that doesn't affect me at all, but there's something so unsettling about them just, appearing behind him, looking at him silently. That's scary to me. I, I have to say something about the twins. I kind of have to get this out there, Sam, because some people listening to this episode may be aware that the film has been uh, commented on slash criticized for what seem to be continuity errors. Um, and so the twins is one of the continuity errors, right? Because we're told at the beginning that Grady killed his daughters who were eight and ten. And, uh, and now you see these twins who, at least we always call them twins, and they were played by twins, and they appear to be twins. So what does that mean? Is it a continuity error? Does it mean that um, the story that's told at the beginning is inaccurate, that the guy telling the story thinks they were eight and ten, but they really were twins? But then you get the other weird apparent discontinuity, right, that it's Charles Grady who chops up the twins, but then it's Delbert Grady who seems to be British, that Jack meets in the in the bathroom are these different Grady's? I mean, so there's a whole world of shining critique that kind of gets really obsessed with continuity errors and talks about things like the impossibility of the physical layout of the Overlook and there shouldn't be a window here. And you know, I, I, I'm bringing that up to say that I couldn't care less about it. Um, it, it's not particularly interesting to me, uh, except insofar as, and this is where it could be interesting, insofar as those are not indeed errors at all, but deliberate strategies on the part of Kubrick to make you wonder whether what's going on is real or not, or to make you wonder, you know, what is what is actually the case and what and what isn't. So um, either way you take it, I think it's, you know, it's uh, I don't worry about it, but it's there. I'm glad you brought that up because that was actually one of the questions that I had was, and it's not, 
you know, do you, it, it really is like, he's such a meticulous filmmaker and especially the Grady thing like that. That's not a continuity error. That's a plot. Like you don't change characters names accidentally in a movie where you're taking 50 takes of every scene. Like, like that doesn't happen. Like that's mm-hmm. obviously meant to be. And there's other continuity things where like there's a chair in the background and then they cut away and cut back and there's not a chair. Like there's mm-hmm. all that stuff. And, and, you know, partially I was wondering like, not what do you make of it, but do you think, do you think that is Kubrick playing with us, or do you mm-hmm. think because because I don't actually buy that he would make that many kind <laughs> of obvious errors, right? Like like are these ways to unsettle you again to be like I thought I saw something and now I didn't. What did I see or not see? Um, and then I move into the 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 stage of like is Kubrick just like James Joyce as well, where it's like well anything he does, we're like well obviously he meant to do that and he's laying. <laughs> Like he's, 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 he's creating another maze for scholars to go down. Like, like, has he, is he, is Kubrick just in that zone where even if he does make a mistake, it, it's not a mistake because he's Kubrick and he can't do that. That's right. Well, and, and also, you know, I mean, what is a continuity error? I mean, somebody says, you know, Wendy's running with the knife and sometimes it's in her right hand, sometimes it's in her left hand. Well, okay. So she shifted hands, you know, I, yeah. or, you know, Jack's typewriter changes color. What? Well, I don't know. You know, who cares? You know, so it's like, and, and, and sometimes, as you know, when you're making a film, you take the best shot you have. Yeah. You, know, you cover as many shots as you can. And then when it comes to editing, you say, well, you know, I know that it changed color, but that's really got, it's got the lighting that we want. So you go with it. And like I said, I, I haven't even quote noticed half of these until I, until I read about them. And to me, it's, it's not the most interesting thing to focus on with a film. To me, it's more, like I said, Maybe it's Kubrick playing with us, but it certainly doesn't, it doesn't distract me in any way. Um, I want to talk about some of the characters in this movie, because uh, I actually think this movie has some great performances. Um, but before we get to the big characters, there's there's also all these like, and this, this is again to, I think, what makes this movie work at being so scary or terrifying to me is there's all these like haunting small parts in this movie i think like lloyd the bar the bartender Mm -hmm. is so interesting in the fact that jack jack's jack knows him right because he calls him lloyd and he starts Mm -hmm. talking to him and and the other interesting thing you know as i was reading this people were talking about you know like a big thing happens when jack starts to drink because you know he had been sober for five months but then i'm thinking if this is in his head there is no alcohol in that building. So he's not really drinking, right? Like this is all in his mind unless he's, unless they are ghosts, in which case is he drinking ghost alcohol? Is that a thing? (laughs) Because, because we know how well stocked it is, but they make a point of saying we take all of the booze out for, for um, insurance reasons. Right, right, right. And and of course the scene with Lloyd happens uh, in front of a mirror um we you know we could talk about mirror motifs in, in the film and so yeah um he's having a conversation with himself and it becomes lloyd and his drunkenness is is, is imaginary um you talked about grady the other character that i find so interesting and haunting and he's just in a little bit of it but I, but there's a parallel to another character that i find haunting is the the bill watson character who's the like when um when he's when jack's being interviewed he's the other guy that gets called into the mm-hmm. interview and he doesn't say much but he just kind of watches and looks at jack the whole time and it reminds me of the character one of the most haunting characters in movies to me the character jerry in apocalypse now the one like 
unexplained government official when he's getting the job yeah, yeah, just yeah, sort yeah. of looks at him and mm-hmm. i feel like bill watson gives those same kind of looks and it's just like who is this guy they he's clearly here for a reason but i don't know why he's there and i like i i that performance is great because it's an almost wordless performance um and yeah i just think i think it, like like adding little pieces like that make those moments a little more haunting yes <laughs> Uh, and then in terms of the performances, uh, Nicholson, I mean, I'm, again, not breaking any news here. turns out he's really good at this, <laughs> at this like being in movies things. Um, I think my first introduction to him was probably 1989 with Tim Burton's Batman, which mm-hmm. is already a big caricature kind of performance. And again, like The Shining, he's somebody who I probably knew through impersonation or caricature before I ever really watched him in things. But I watched something like this movie or or Cuckoo's Nest, and I just he is a bolt of electricity. Like he is so fascinating to watch and is the most perfect person for this. Like I can't I, I you know, I know that that Stephen King hated him as a uh, the casting of him. I cannot imagine this movie being this movie without that performance from that person. He was the only person that Kubrick wanted for the beginning. Uh, And Kubrick had been wanting to work with Jack Nicholson for a long time. One of Kubrick's unrealized projects was Napoleon. And he wanted Nicholson to play Napoleon. Um, One of the strange things about Nicholson in this role is uh, he actually looks a little bit like Kubrick. uh, And that that glower where he looks down and then looks up at you. If you see, if you see photos of Stanley Kubrick, that is like the most frequent angle at which people film, film Kubrick. Now Kubrick, his face was fleshier than, than Nicholson's, but there is enough of a similarity. I, one, one, one critics describe Nicholson's performance this way. He says, Jack Nicholson plays Jack Nicholson playing Jack Torrance, playing Jack Torrance as King of the Mountain. And I think Nicholson's performance grates on people who I think don't want to go with the deliberate, almost campiness of it at times. But I think it works. Those eyebrows shooting up all the time and the maniacal laugh. It just it works perfectly well for this role. Yeah. And and I mean, and it's it's amazing. He's somebody that I like I watch this movie and it's like, I never want to meet this human being because he actually just might be the devil. Right. Like like you just sort of believe like this is this is and it's it's really 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 amazing now it's interesting that face you talked about kind of the looking down looking up um he does like you're right kubrick you see him photograph the time you also see kubrick use that look in lots of movies you see alex mm-hmm. like that in clockwork yes. orange uh private pile right before uh mm-hmm. he he or as he's kind of going going crazy in um yeah. in the bathroom in a in a full metal jacket like there's something about that look that Kubrick mm-hmm. is drawn to as well. And Jack does it as well as, uh, as well as anyone. Yeah. It's kind of a primal stare. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's very, um, it, it's, 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 there's something, I don't know, almost bestial about it. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. It, it is, right. it is, yeah. it is the way you might stare, look at an animal who was staring at you in a way you didn't want it to be yeah, looking. It's at very you. threatening. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that the, the Danny Lloyd, the, the, the young actor is great in this movie and this is a movie where the child performance could ruin it if if you didn't if you didn't get the right the right performance um now one of the things that i read that i don't understand is that apparently kubrick Mm. convinced danny lloyd that he was in a family drama and he hid all the horror from him and as i watch this movie it's like 
Stanley, how do you explain the things you, you're having him do then? <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> I did not. Yeah, I did not understand that either. Um, I read that because I, I have just I have to say, um, uh, Sam, I had just finished reading Sarah Polly's memoir. Um, you know, we've, we watched Polly as, a, as the director of Away From Her, but she was a child actress. That's how she made her uh, her reputation. And she most most notably in Terry Gilliam's Baron Munchausen. And she talked about the, the, the abuse, almost the emotional and psychological abuse of child actors. And so it made me worry for Danny Lloyd. Um, and, you know, evidently, I don't know, he, he didn't pursue filmmaking. He made one more movie, then he was done. Um, the other thing I have to say that I had not remembered as many times as I watched this film, I'd forgotten how young he was. He was even younger than I than, than I remembered. I think his performance is all the more remarkable for that. Mm -hmm. But yes, how he was shielded from those horrors or how he thought running around in the maze, maybe even just running around in the maze, there was no one chasing him. And they said, run around, just have fun. Yeah. Well, explain holding a knife while your mother's sleeping and you're saying in a weird voice, red rum. Red rum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's not, that doesn't happen in regular life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but I do think even the like, because he has to play Danny as this innocent, he has to play Danny as Tony. He has to play Danny and Tony together. Um, and then he has to play like trance Danny, um, yeah, which yeah, is also yeah. like those images are really disturbing to look at. Um, and uh, it's yeah, it, it is. It is one of the better child performances in a movie that I think is, again, feels like it should be ruined by the child performance. And it's not. Yeah. And the, the Tony voice is especially remarkable because he's really giving two performances for one for one. It's really good. Uh, I think Shelley Duvall is great in this movie. I know she was, uh, there was a lot of criticism of her um, uh, at the time, uh, but I think like she, her role is so important in this movie because you have Danny who is vacant so much of the movie, especially the back half of the movie. And you have Jack who is falling into madness that you need her to both kind of ground the movie but also to like her you need her terror the terror she is feeling towards the end of that movie because everybody else is 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 almost not a human being at that point you know like 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 because because tony has taken over danny um because i don't think that after he says danny's gone i don't know that we ever see him as really specifically no. danny again no and uh, you know she she had a hellish experience on on the on the set. Um, it seems like Kubrick and Kubrick often did this quite deliberately. I mean, he was famous. You already alluded to this for multiple takes. I think the scene where he's she's fending him off of the baseball bat. I think they did something like 127 takes on that. And she's and walking backwards upstairs. Walking backwards, and you can see there's a mini documentary that Vivian Kubrick made about the film, and you can see Kubrick being almost as abusive to Duval on the set as Jack is to her in the film. And I think that was a, a strategy by Kubrick, but it probably explains why very few actors work with Kubrick more than once. Um, and, and Malcolm McDowell was infuriated with Kubrick after Clockwork Orange. Um, but Duval said, you know, and nobody, I, I did all this and nobody paid any attention to the performance. Um, in fact, she got a Razzie uh, for worst actress and Kubrick got a Razzie for worst director right after the film came out. They rescinded her Razzie because they understood what Kubrick had put her through. But I think her performance, I mean, I think she's really well, cast. she's perfectly cast and she's not one of those characters like Jack that Kubrick changed significantly from, from the novel. One more reason why 
Stephen King didn't like the adaptation because he deliberately made her very mousy. She's obviously a victim of domestic abuse. She's an enabler. Um, and she just does that really well. Yeah. I mean, there is something about the scene at the beginning where she's talking to the doctor about when Danny dislocates her, his shoulder and maybe in 2022, we're more attuned to what that language is, but it's like, that just jumps out at you as like, whenever you hear somebody talk like that, you know, that they're covering up for bigger problems in the, in the home. Um, and, and, and she does such a great job of, uh, of delivering that dialogue as well. Um, all right. So we're, we're running short of time and, and this is a movie again, we could just talk forever about, uh, I want to, I just want to, what do you think this movie's about? And I'm, I'm going to preface this by saying the things people throw out there and we don't need to talk about any of this stuff, but there, there's a very interesting documentary called room two, three, seven, which I presume yes. you've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, actually one of the people in that documentary is a professor at Albion college. So Chris Moore, one of our colleagues has actually taken classes from that <laughs> professor at Albion. Um, but people diving deep, deep into this movie, really in the sort of VHS DVD era where you can stop and pause and do these things. Um, and they are making the case that this movie is about the native American genocide, the Holocaust Kubrick being the person who faked the moon landing mm-hmm. um, all of these other things. Um, and I mean, I, I would say it's a testament to how well this movie stands up to interpretation that you can look at those things and be like, yeah, maybe, you know, like, sure. I mean, I'm not opposed to that, but it doesn't have to be about that either. It's not like this movie doesn't, this is why I was saying about contemporary critics. It's not like you need these interpretations to be like, wow, this was a secret masterpiece on its face. It is, it, it just, it is what it is, but it still, it, it still stands up to those interpretations. The most interesting thing in that movie um, and again, this is this is probably mostly like um, the dark side of the rainbow, like when people sync up Pink Floyd to the Wizard of Oz is that they 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 show the movie where they're playing it forwards and backwards overlaid over each other and looking for synchronicities. Now, that's ridiculous, but it's really interesting. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, but you could do that with probably anything. And if you're looking close enough, you could find things. But like, I, there, what is it about this movie that leads people to want to spend this much time with it are there other movies that get that that get this dissected this kind of way i'm actually curious do david lynch movies get this because lynch this reminds me of a lynch movie to the degree of like you watch it and it ends and i'm shaken by it and i'm like what did i just see and how do i make sense out of that um and then ultimately what do you think this movie's about well, first of all, I, I will just say that I haven't delved deeply into this, but I think that Mulholland Drive uh, gets that kind of attention. Actually. Okay. And I'm glad you mentioned Lynch. We'll come back to him later. Um, okay, well, I'm going I'm to start answering your question by quoting Kubrick. Uh, Kubrick said in an interview, I've never been able to decide whether the plot in any film is just a way of keeping people's attention while you do everything else, or whether the plot is really more important than anything else perhaps communicating with us on an unconscious level, which affects us in the way that myths myths once did. And so I want to say one of the things I find interesting about the film, what it's about is that it taps into a lot of myths and fairy tales, sometimes quite explicitly. So Hansel and Gretel, right? You have uh, Wendy saying she'd have to leave a breadcrumb to find her way out. You three little pigs, right? When he chops down the door, uh, 
I think Theseus and the Minotaur with the with with, with the labyrinth, um, and even modern quote myths like Bugs Bunny uh, and the Roadrunner and Wiley e. Coyote. So so it's it's all about to me it's fundamentally about in what form in what forms will evil appear in what ways will evil test you and how will you manage to somehow defeat it uh and that goes along with what i said earlier about the the most disturbing part of the film is how do you deal with evil that comes from within the family so i think what it it does what any good horror film does is it provides a kind of catharsis right it it awakens those fears. It dramatizes those fears. It shows you the worst. I mean, really, what's what's worse than a father trying to kill his own child and wife? I mean, that's that, that's that's fundamentally one of the kind of prime, primal, most awful things that can happen. And so, the film enables you to confront that fear and then to 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 defeat it uh, to a certain extent. Depends on what you make of the last shot. So, what do you make of the last shot? <laughs> Uh, I think he's a reincarnation. Yeah. So he's always uh, been the caretaker. Yeah, he's always been the caretaker. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But 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 I but I but I don't I, I say that, but I don't think that it means that we still don't feel for the family unit that we don't feel a sense of catharsis. But it's as though Kubrick is saying, yes, he's been defeated this time, but he'll be back. Yeah, and it's so interesting. Uh, one of the scenes that jumped out at me the second time I watched it uh, this week was the scene where. It's when Danny goes into room 237 and Jack is having the nightmare at the table. And when he says, basically, he lays out the Grady story. He says, I had the worst night. I had the worst nightmare. And he says, you know, that I I chopped you guys up with an axe. And he seems terrified by his own, by, by the fact that that could come out of his psyche and that he would be, he could be capable of that. And at that moment, he doesn't feel like somebody who's going to do that. Even though later on in the movie, he sure seems like somebody who's trying to do that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I find that, I find that really, uh, re- really, really interesting. Um, if we're thinking, I, I, I had you before kind of, you know, uh, you talked about this movie in terms of where it ranks with other Kubrick movies. Does this movie speak to other Kubrick movies? Is this in conversation with anything else? Well, okay. Uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this, but I I alluded earlier to reading James Naramore's essay on the film in a really fine book called On Kubrick. And Naramore does a really interesting job of drawing parallels between this film and 2001. Uh, and you already alluded to, to the music of that, but he, he, ta- he talks about even going into room 237 versus the room that the astronaut goes into. And there's a number of other parallels that he points out, isolation, uh, some kind of force, uh, some kind of non-human force at work, a couple, couple of other ways in which he sees it, kind of communicating a little bit. And I never made that connection before. I'd always thought of The Shining as kind of unique in in Kubrick's canon, except for the fact that every Kubrick film is about the evil of human nature and how you deal with that. Well, Barrett, we could talk about this forever, but we are running running short of time. Uh, Do you have anything else you want to talk about with this movie? I guess I just want to underline the idea. I want to say that the movie is in the genre of gothic horror. So the Overlook is a kind of a castle, but the the monster is the white male patriarch. That's unusual. But then the mode is the fantastic. And and, and the mode of the fantastic, this comes from Todorov's work on, on fantasy. The mode of the fantastic is undecidability. 
not really sure if this is real or not. And, and Roger Ebert in his review of the film echoes that. He says there's no way within the film to be sure with any confidence exactly what happens or precisely how or really why. I'm not sure I fully agree with that, but I do think there's a, there's a lot of undecidability, which, which is why the film continues to resonate. All right. So what do you have for us for next week? How do we follow this up? Uh, well, you know, there's a couple different directions I'm thinking of. And our conversation has convinced me to go in one particular direction. Um, and this also I've been thinking about because uh, one of the claims that I read about the making of the film, and I don't know if it's true or not, and I don't care because uh, it serves my purpose, like Iago and Othello. One of the claims is that Kubrick had the cast watch David Lynch's Eraserhead. So we've talked enough about Lynch in connection to the film, the connection to your, your dream life. Uh, and of course, Eraserhead is on my top 10 all-time list. So I think we need to watch uh, David Lynch's Eraserhead for next week. Wow, you're really doing a number on me, Barrett. This is a movie I have wanted to watch since high school when I heard a, a high school teacher describe part of it. I have been scared to watch this movie. So I'm so excited to be like, well, now I have to watch it and I have to dig into it. So I'm I'm actually really excited for this. Although I will tell you, I am... I need to watch this in the right setting because I'm a little, I'm a little scared to watch. I don't even really know what it's about, but I'm a little scared to watch it just from like brief uh, descriptions I've heard from people. But I distinctly remember in high school, having a teacher talk about the movie Eraserhead. Um, So I am thrilled and excited for next week. Uh, Barrett, thank you so much for, uh, for recommending this movie, for having this conversation with me, for scaring me regularly throughout this week by <laughs> keep by keeping revisiting it. Um, that is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Eraserhead in the video store.